John chapter 10, and I want to read the passage I'll be preaching from. John chapter 10, beginning in, um, I'm going to begin in verse 7, which we covered 7 through 9 last week. But I want to begin in verse 7, it's the beginning of the paragraph, and go through verse 18. I'll be preaching a message entitled, I am the Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd. And you might want to know this message series, I've entitled it, Meditations on the Good Shepherd and His Sheep. Because I believe that's what this chapter is all about. Meditations on the Good Shepherd, the True Shepherd, and His Sheep. Let's look at these verses together. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let's pray. God, You are magnificent. Thank you for revealing your true nature to us in the words of Scripture so that we might read them, memorize them, meditate on these words, and beyond these words, that our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our strength might be focused on you, Jesus. God, forgive us for our lack of attention. Forgive us for our straying from You. We are sinful, but You have saved us. And so we don't focus on our sin. We repent of it and we turn to You and say, we know that we have righteousness, perfect righteousness, that has been given to us, that we have been clothed in by our shepherd, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, help us through the Spirit to focus on you during this message. To turn our eyes away from our selfish, sinful motivations and turn our eyes to you. Jesus, thank you for these words of comfort and of security. We trust in you and you alone as our shepherd. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We've come to the fourth of Jesus' statements of I am. He said, I am the light. He said, before I am, then just before this, he said, I am the door. And now he's saying for the fourth time, I am, I am the shepherd, the good shepherd. And I told you last week we wanted to keep these two analogies, the door and the shepherd, apart, separate them in, in preaching, because I think you know we tend to get focused on this part. This is probably one of the most famous I am statements. I am the good shepherd. Everybody loves the analogy of a shepherd. And that's because, as we've talked about before, the shepherd analogy fits us so well. We're all looking for someone to love us, to care for us, to know us, to pay attention to us. To take care of our needs and our wants. We're all looking for that. You came in here today looking for that. The sad reality is a lot of times we're looking in the wrong places for that comfort and that security and that connection and that knowing that relationship. But we're all looking for relationship. All of us are. And Jesus says, I'm the true shepherd. And beyond that, I'm the only shepherd giving my life up for you. And one step further, I know you and you know me. I don't just know you on the surface. Notice what he says. I know you the way I know the Father. And you know me the way I know the Father. It's in a surface relationship that all the other things in the world offer us. This is an intimate relationship, a personal relationship. And a relationship that surpasses even the relationship of a husband and a wife, which is the closest I think we can come on the earth to what he's talking about. And that's why he uses that as his example. The way your husband or your wife knows every inch of you, every detail of your heart, every motivation, every word, Jesus knows you, except He knows you even better. So everybody in this room came here today and part of your motivation was I want to know Jesus or I just want somebody to know me. I don't feel like anybody knows me. I don't feel like I connect with any person on the face of the earth. And so it's to you that Jesus said, I'm the true shepherd. If you're looking for someone to know you, I'll know you, and you'll know me. This analogy offers hope to the hopeless. This word picture, this parable offers what nothing else in the world can offer you. Not your wife, not your friends, not your job, not your money, not your recreation. Nothing else can offer what Jesus is offering in this parable. And we instinctively know it's true. 
Only the creator of the universe can connect our hearts the way he's connecting our hearts. I mean, can you feel the words? I'm not asking you to hear the words. I'm asking you to taste the words and feel the words. I've come that they may have life and that they may have that life abundantly. The thief came to steal and kill and destroy you, but I have come that you may have life. And he said, I am the good shepherd. I'm the true shepherd. That word translated for you in your text, good, is the same word that we might understand as true. I am the true shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. He's contrasting himself with the religious leaders of his day and with the systems of this world. And he's saying, I'm not like them. I'm true. I'm good. They're wretched. They're despised. They hate you. They won't care for you. They are false. And they came to kill and steal and destroy you, and I came to give you life. I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know me. I lay down my life for my sheep, he says. Do you see it? Do you feel it? Do you taste that that's good? He says all the other shepherds, they're thieves, they're robbers, they're plundering the sheep. And when the bad things in this life come and attack you, they're going to run. They're not going to be dependable. They're going to leave you. They're going to desert you. Your religious system that you've placed your hope in your good works that you've placed your hope in, those humans that you've trusted in for your salvation and for your hope and for your security, they're going to run from you when bad times come. You won't be able to find them when persecution rises because they don't own you. You don't belong to them. They'll fail you. They don't love you. They're not good shepherds. That's what it says, isn't it? So if you came here today pretending that you got it all together and saying, I don't need anybody else. I'm okay on my own. I'm telling you ahead of time, there's a day coming when your world will crumble around you where you will not have it all together, where you will not be able to shepherd your own heart through the storms of this life, where you will find yourself turned upside down and unable to stand up on your own feet. And in just a short time, you will die in that condition. Sheep often get in a panic. And sometimes they get turned upside down. They fall down and they fall on their backs. Sheep don't have the muscle necessary to flip themselves over. And in a very short time, they will be in such distress, they will overheat and die. And all that's wrong is somebody needs to pick them up and turn them right side up. They called that cast. The sheep is cast. That's what they used to call it. 
He's cast. He needs a shepherd. He needs a shepherd to pick him up and place him on his shoulders and to carry him through that hard time. And what I'm telling you is, whether you realize it or not, that time's coming for your life, and Jesus says, I'm the only shepherd that will pick you up and carry you through the turmoil that you will come to. I'm the only one. If you trust anything else when it comes, when the bad time comes, it'll flee you. It will run from you. Whatever it is, for some of you it's religion. Coming to a church like this, hearing a message once a week, trying to obey, trying to do the good things, living a legal life. I'm telling you, when the hard times come, that will run and hide from you. And you'll find no comfort in what you've done. You'll only wonder, have I done enough? For some of you, it's family. And you've said, I can can survive because I've got a relationship with my family. And I'm telling you, not because I'm a prophet of any sort, but because it's true, God will systematically take those things from you. Your children will turn from you or will die. Your husband or your wife might not offer you the relationship that you're looking for. And so God will be proven true. When the tough times come, your family won't stand. They won't be able to shepherd you. He's the only one. It might be your health that you hold on to so dearly. And you work out and you eat right and you say, I can make it through anything as long as I'm not sick. The day of sickness comes for just about everybody. And when it does, it doesn't matter how good your health was in the past. It runs and it's gone. It can't shepherd. It can't secure you. It can't give you hope. When the doctor says, you've got cancer. Or the doctor says, you've got a tumor on the brain. Or the doctor says that you've got the onset of Alzheimer's. The fact that you were healthy at one point doesn't matter anymore. In this trial, there's no shepherd for you. You have no hope. You're like that sheep turned upside down now and it cannot stand back right side up. You're hopeless. Unless there's a shepherd. And that's why Jesus says, I'm the true shepherd. And I didn't come to destroy you with those things. I came to give you life. Abundant life. I am the good shepherd. Jesus gives believers abundant life. Jesus gives believers abundant life. Now this is mistaught all over the map in our day. You, you've had to sit through those messages, haven't you? Where There is being saved, and then there is the abundance of salvation. The categories message, you've heard that one. There's people who are saved and don't experience the abundance. There's people who are saved and get the abundance. The double helping in a sense. I want you to notice what this verse says. Notice what it says. Verse 10 is very clear. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they. Who, who, Who are they? They're the sheep. There's only two categories in this verse. There's those who are sheep and those who are not sheep. The thief came to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they, the sheep, not those who are not sheep, I came that the sheep might have life and that they might have it abundant. There's no category of sheep without abundant life and sheep with abundant life. 
No division among the sheep. All of the sheep have abundant life. All of them. There's no second heaping coming. When you're saved, you receive abundant, eternal life. And you have it right now. Did you hear that? Christian, stop living your life waiting for heaven. Stop living your life as if heaven is the goal. As if my only hope is I get in the new creation. That's all I care about. Well, I'm just going to muddle through this life. That's not what Jesus saved you to. He saved you to a relationship with Him now in abundant life. Right now. You are to live the eternal life you've been given today. Abundant. Abundant life. We might call it the content life. This word that we translate abundant can mean content. And I believe this is what Paul means in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, when he says, I'm not speaking of having a need. For no matter what station of life I find myself in, whether it's on top or on the bottom, I've learned to be content in all things. Paul had an abundant life in prison. Paul had an abundant life in chains, being beaten and shipwrecked and stoned and left for dead and sick and blind. Paul was living an abundant life. If you'd have interviewed Paul, he'd have said, and said, Paul... Are you waiting on the abundant life? He just said, by no means. The abundant life's why I've survived this long. That's what my hope and aim is. I'm living abundantly now. Right now. Content. Why, Paul? How can you say you're living an abundant life? Because I'm content with whatever place I'm in. I have a good shepherd. He's given me eternal life. It's mine right now. We need to stop living in this pessimism of current Christianity. This defeatism. It is true that all things have not been conquered completely, completely realized as conquered, okay? But they have, the final word has been spoken over it. Sin is dead. Death is dead. Hell is dead to you. If you are a believer. And you need to live in that. I believe Satan is wearing us out. As individuals and as a church. Because we don't know. We, we, we act like we don't have abundant life. We're totally discontent. On our best days. We talk about our mistakes and our failures. Rather than the victory given to us in Christ. Paul was content. He wasn't satisfied with sin and he wasn't making a deal with the world and living like the world to just muddle by and survive. That's what we're doing. He was living this abundant life. It's contentment. The word in the Greek is parisos, which means surplus or overflow. Surplus, it's a mathematic term in the, in, in the Greek. We see it at, as mathematics. 
When Jesus fed the 5,000, it says he had a surplus of food which they gathered up in baskets. They were full and overflowing. There was a surplus more than they needed. Jesus didn't save you and just get you by. He gave you more than you'll ever need. Isn't that wonderful? Y'all looking at me like y'all don't believe it. Y'all are about as dead as y'all can be. Look at me. Can you not feel the power of these words? You have a surplus. You're not living off a ration given from heaven. You're living off the extreme riches of heaven. Which are new every morning. Where sin abounded, what? Grace was in surplus. It abounded much more. And we sit in a message and we just kind of muddle through. Let's just get done with this. Get on to the next thing in life. We have no connection with Him. We're suffering from disconnect from our shepherd. He has said, you have abundant life. When the Jews who were hearing this message heard this, they didn't sit and just say, well, that's great. Let's move on. When they heard this, their hearts leapt for joy. The elect leapt for joy. And they said, this is what we've waited for all our life is somebody with the hope come from heaven. No more following the blind guides. We've got a Savior who's given us eternal life right now. They didn't take it for granted. They rejoiced over it. And their hearts were exuberant as they thought about the abundant, eternal life they had now in an overflowing way. I think about this word. I think about the river, the Mississippi River. And the fact that everyone who lives on the Mississippi River will tell you it's a matter of time until its banks are exceeded and their cities are filled with water. They know it. They don't live thinking, well, maybe it'll happen. They know it's going to happen. The TV tries to convince you they didn't know it was coming. Everybody who lives in the Midwest on the channel of the Mississippi River knows their city's going to get flooded sometime in their life. And there's not anything to stop it. When it overflows in abundance, you can build all the levees you want. You can't keep the damage from happening. And that, that river water overflows and it invades everything in their cities. It doesn't just invade one part. It invades whole cities. And when it does, we focus on destruction but don't ever forget that it's those overflows that bring the sediment which allow us to have the food which we eat. That flood rearranges everything in their lives, but it brings them the good of a promise of a crop which is yet to come. Years ago, that's the way they saw it. When they saw the river rising, they just moved out of the way and let it happen because it filled their land with the minerals they needed to grow the crop. And so instead of damming up the abundant grace he's offered into one section of our life, be it the religious section, the family section, or whatever it is, let it invade your life completely, overflow into you.
It's destructive. It's going to rearrange everything you know as normal right now. But it's going to bring you what you need for the grace of crop, which can only be given to you through the abundant life. I came to give you life on the overflow. Not just enough to get by, but all you could ever want or need. Jesus said, I came to give you abundant life. Jesus gives not only abundant life, but Jesus gives His life for believers. We get this abundant life not through some vague channel unknown to us. We get abundant life through Jesus Christ. You see, He follows up the statement about abundant. Look what He says, the very next statement. I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. How do we have abundant life? Because he gave his life for us. I'm the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Look in verse 15. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, I have authority to lay it down of my own accord. Verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18, all focus on the fact that Jesus laid down His life for believers. Now, I qualify He laid down His life for believers because that's what the text does. And I think we miss it often. First thing we see about his death is that it's voluntary. Nobody did it to him. He willingly laid it down. No one stole his life from him. Nobody nobody took it when he wasn't expecting it. He laid down his life. It didn't happen on accident. It wasn't a chance. It wasn't just the circumstances of life that caused him to die. He laid down his life. He gave it up. It was a willing sacrifice. God did not force him to lay down his life. God the Father did not twist the Son's arm and say, now you don't have a choice, boy. You get down there and die for those people. Jesus said, Father, this sin must be paid for if they will have abundant life. I'll lay down my life. I'll give myself so they may have life. It was a willing sacrifice. He wasn't forced into it by the Father or by humanity. Secondly, we see about his death that it was vicarious. Big, big word, right? Vicarious. Just simply means it was for somebody. Dave said, the cross did not make it possible for people to be saved. The cross saved people. Is that not what he says right here? Verse 11. Look at verse 11. Read it along with me again. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That preposition for key. In the Greek, it's a hyper. 
translated for everywhere in the scripture. For the sheep. In other words, when he died, he didn't die in general for sin. He died for his people. One strain of the church would try to say all he did was pay the price for sin in general. And he made it possible for anyone who believes to then be saved. Because he covered the sin in general. Is that what this verse says? Does it say, I lay down my life for the sin which is in the world. So somebody might could get saved one day. And I might have a sheep. I hope I have some sheep. But can you imagine in this parable, Jesus said, I'm going, to kill, I'm going to die. I'm going to lay down my life for sin. And I sure hope somebody believes one day so I have a flock of sheep. There aren't any sheep in here yet, but this fold, I hope one day it's overflowing. Can you imagine the difference from what he says? Not what That's not what he says at all, is it? He said, I lay down my life for these sheep. Jesus was thinking specifically of the elect when he spoke of his sacrifice. I'm going to lay down my life, not just for anybody, for the sheep. It's vicarious. It means it was on behalf of somebody. It was for the sheep. And therefore, it was limited. In terms of salvation... His death was limited. Okay? It had effect and impact on the whole world. I was telling our membership classes, we were talking about this 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 morning. Paul makes it clear that he even died for the sins of the whole world in one sense. But when he says that, he says he died for the elect and also for the sins of the world. Not the same, in other words. Different. When Jesus died as the shepherd of the sheep, he was giving his life for his sheep. And everybody in his audience understood that. Because a lot of them were shepherds. And they said, I wouldn't die for that guy's sheep. I wouldn't die for just sheep in general. I don't just go out into the wilderness and say, I'm going to stand guard over any sheep that are in Israel. No, he said, I'm standing guard over my sheep. And if a bad uh, uh, animal, if a, if a if a animal comes to attack my sheep, I'll die to protect them. Lion, bear, whatever. If a thief comes to steal my sheep, I'm going to fight him and protect my sheep. They understood this is not just general; it's specific. It's limited. Jesus limits his statement in verse 11. He does, and look in verse 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. So Jesus gives abundant abundant life to believers. Jesus gives His life for believers. This is how we get abundant life. Him giving up His life on our behalf. Jesus has a relationship with believers. Look in verses 14 and 15. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me. He has an intimate knowledge, a foreknowledge, we might say, of all of his sheep. He had a relationship with them that is very personal. I've described it in weeks gone by. How the shepherd takes his sheep. He knows them by name. He knows their specific traits. He loves them. He cares for them. He nurtures them. He protects them. He shepherds them as individuals inside the greater flock. He knows them. And they know him. And as his analogy of how that we will know him and he will know us, he does what? He says, it's like my father knows me and I know my father. There's no greater assurance of relationship with Jesus Christ than he put it, he he based it on the Trinity. You say, well, I kind of know him right now, but I'm afraid I might not know him in the future. Is there ever a time that God the Father will not know his son or that the son will not know his father? No. No, there's not. And there's never going to be a time that Jesus doesn't know his people and that his people won't know him. It's a sure, secure relationship. And it's an intimate relationship. The word used here for know is the same type word used for sexual relations within a marriage. So in the Old Testament when you read, Adam knew his wife and she bore for him a son. It's the same idea. Jesus knows us. Jesus knows us. He gives abundant life. He gives his own life. He knows us in a relationship. Finally, Jesus has one body of believers. Look in verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. He did not come only for Israel. I have sheep that are not of this fold. Now he's referencing back, look back over to the beginning of this parable when he says, when describing the sheep, he says in verse 2, but he who enters by the door, he's talking about this fold. When he enters by the door, is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know his voice. The description here is of a shepherd who's entering the sheepfold. Verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door. See, the analogy in the first part Verses 1 through 5 is of a sheepfold. And I told you three weeks ago, that's Israel. Jesus entered through the door, the law. He was perfect and righteous, and He came through the way prepared for God. He's the only one to ever do that. And when He entered into Israel, He called His sheep out of Israel, and He led them out of Israel. He brought them out of Israel. He brought them out of their religion, out of their heritage. 
their dependence on the flesh and being descendants of Abraham. He brought them out. Well, where is he taking them? Verse 16 answers the question. Verse 16 answers the question. There'll be one flock and one shepherd. Look, he's bringing them out and then he's bringing them in to the church. In other words, he didn't just come for Israel, the physical Israel. He came for his sheep. And there are some sheep in Israel. And he's leading them out. And he saved them. And they have abundant life. And they trust in him. And he died for them. But if that was all there was, we would have no hope because we're not of Israel. And so in verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that aren't in Israel. They're not in the physical nation of Israel. Jesus died for the Jews and the Gentiles. I have other sheep that are not in this fold, Israel. And they've got to come too. And then there'll be one shepherd and one flock. He was, he has not just saved the Jews who believe, but he saved the Gentiles who believe, and he's made them into one flock. We might call it the church, universal. Jerome erred on this passage. The great leader of the of the uh, Roman Catholic Church back in the in the centuries just after Christ, even in 400, he when translating this into the Vulgate, into the Latin, he focused not on the the verse 16. He didn't focus on, so there will be one flock. He said there will be one fold. That's not what the passage says. There's not just one Roman Catholic church. And that's what he did with the interpretation. Some wrongly still interpret it that way. Jesus doesn't say there's only going to be one denomination. One group. He says there'll be one flock. In other words, inside of each denomination there are sheep. And inside of each denomination there are those who are not sheep. But what ties the sheep together is the one shepherd. There'll be one flock and one shepherd. How do you know if you're in this flock? Do you hear the voice of the shepherd? Are you following him? If you are, then you're in the flock. It doesn't matter if you're in the Catholic Church or in the Protestant Church, if you're in the Evangelical Church or the Mainline Church, it doesn't matter. What matters is Christ. Are you following the shepherd? If not, then you're not of the sheep. You're not in the flock. We might call it the church universal or we might just call it what the Bible does. Spiritual Israel. That's what Paul called it. Take your time, take the time to turn with me to a couple passages as we close. This is powerful in way of setting up our next message. Romans 9. Romans 9. I'm just going to read these passages and just look. It's amazing to me when I take people to these passages that how they've read them their whole life and they never paid attention. In light of Jesus saying there'll be one flock and there'll be one shepherd. Now listen to what Paul says. But it's not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Huh? I entered through the sheepfold door, and I called my sheep, and my sheep came out, and they followed me. But not all the sheep in Israel came out. 
Because not all of Israel is Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring by the flesh. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. So it's not physical flesh descendants which Jesus was talking about that saves you. It's not who your heritage is. It's are you a child of the promise? So how do I know if I'm a child of the promise? Look at Galatians chapter 4 to get an expansive view on this concept and to show you it's not just in this one chapter in this one place, in this one section of Jesus' teaching. It's replete throughout the Scriptures. I'm just giving you three places because we don't have time to cover all of it in one message. That the flock is the church, is spiritual Israel. It's all the same. One flock and one shepherd. Galatians 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, he's speaking to Gentiles. Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Hagar, they understand. Hagar and Sarah. Ishmael and Isaac. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And the the Israelites are saying, you're right, Paul. We agree. Now look what he does. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, the law. The law. Bearing children for slavery. What? Every Jew in the world is offended by that verse. Are you kidding me? You just said that... And look, he goes further. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia she corresponds to what? Present Jerusalem. Paul just said, if you are trusting in your flesh, you are a child of Hagar. And he just said, Jerusalem, the seat of Judaism, is Hagar. Talk about stepping on toes. This is offensive. Just like John chapter 10 was offensive. To the Pharisees. Because he dared to say, I'm not just here to save Israel, I'm here to save everyone who believes in me, my sheep. And there's going to be one flock, and there's going to be one shepherd. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, he's speaking to Gentiles, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to flesh persecuted him who was born according to spirit, so also it is now. Verse 31, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We're not children of Israel, flesh. We're children of spirit and promise. 
both Jew and Gentile, one flock and one shepherd. One last verse to end the point. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul emphasizes, this isn't some footnote in his theology, this is in some ways his whole theology of salvation. Therefore, verse 11, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Every Jew in the congregation said, Amen and Amen. Praise God, He gets it right. The Jews are promised and the Gentiles have no hope. They amen too quick. Because then He says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one, one flock, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man and in place of the two. One flock. Spiritual Israel. The church universal. All who believe. Jew and Gentile. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, both Jews and Gentiles. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets The Gentiles are built on the foundation laid in Israel. The church is built on that same foundation. And Christ Jesus Himself is our cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together and it grows up into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There is one flock and there is one shepherd And it contains, that flock contains everybody who believes. There's no hope in your heritage, and you're not lost because of your heritage. Jesus says, You have abundant life if you trust in my life, which was laid down for you, so that you might be part of this one flock. My people, the temple of God. A beautiful word of the gospel to you this morning is if you're looking for a place to belong and if you're looking for a shepherd, you'll find it in him and in him alone. And you'll find it through the gospel and nothing else. There's no hope outside the gospel. But there's no condemnation inside. And so I invite you to respond If you've heard this message and said, I'm outside, but I believe, praise God. If you've heard this message and you've said, I hear what you're saying, brother, but I don't believe it at all. Beg God to change you. That's all I can say. 
Beg God to change you. And beg God to give you faith before it's too late. Let's pray.